Good afternoon, everyone, from Gainesville, Florida. This is episode two of the Spill the Cup podcast. Once again, I'm Edgar Chavero alongside my co-host, Jonathan Acosta. What's up, Edgar? How's it going? We want to thank everyone who listened to episode one, our World Cup preview episode, where we talked about our expectations for the tournament and some of the players that we thought would have a big impact throughout. Jonathan, you started that one by saying that you had World Cup fever for a while. How was that for eight days of the World Cup? I mean, that was just fantastic. Even on Saturday, woke up bright and early, 5.45 a.m. to watch France versus Australia. Wasn't the best game. The French kind of disappointed in that one. And uh, we'll touch on that later. But just amazing eight days of soccer. No 0-0 games. A lot of 1-0 games to make up for it. But couldn't have asked for a much better start to the group stage. And there's been a lot of teams that have really impressed me right from the go. I think it would be unfair not to talk about the Russians in their own tournament. They currently have the best goal differential out of any team with plus seven. How do you think their chances are going forward now? Like you said, Russia's probably been the most surprisingly good team so far of the tournament. Coming into the tournament, they had kind of struggled in some friendlies. They were out of form. We didn't know how they'd be doing. Old uh, defense and everything. But what's really surprised me about them is how free-flowing they've been playing and everything. In this World Cup, we've seen a lot of set-piece goals. I think the stat was around 61% of goals had been scored from set-pieces coming into match day two. While Russia, their only set-piece goal was a master free kick from Golovin in the first game. Other than that, all of them have come from the run of play, and Golovin kind of pulling the strings right there in the midfield. But then they've had other really good pieces too. Shetyshev came in from the Zagoyev injury, scored two goals against uh, Saudi Arabia, scored that goal against Egypt, three goals through two games. Zuba's been a monster up there at striker. Uh, You have other pieces like Samedov, even the back line with Zhirkov. Uh, Akinfeyev hasn't made any huge mistakes like we saw in the 2014 World Cup. So Russia's been really impressive. If they they just need a draw against Uruguay, and they, they top the group because of the goal differential. So that's huge for the Russians. It means that they could possibly avoid playing Spain um, if Spain ends up winning the group like many people predicted, kind of give them an easier path to possibly make it to the quarterfinals, which coming into the tournament, I'm not sure if a lot of people thought that Russia would be a quarterfinal team. And as good as the Russians have been, they still can't shake off the team right behind them in Uruguay. You mentioned last time that they, they were your dark horse for this tournament. They've kind of gritty, really gritty 1-0 wins so far. And that's Uruguay. The- that's always been Uruguay. Uruguay's never been the team to kind of just like run up the score on you or anything. When they had Diego Forlan, they had a little bit more of an attacking presence, I feel like, but especially the last eight years or so, they're kind of that gritty team. They're just going to lock down, doing it, do what they need to do, almost like a Leicester City kind of, where they're just going to play really tight, solid defense, grind in the midfield, and depend on their talent up top like Leicester City did when they had Mares and Vardy like that with Cavani and Suarez, just let them make moments of magic. They're perfectly fine playing in 1-0 games. With those two teams already qualifying, sadly, you're going to have Mohamed Salah, uh, Egypt's pharaoh almost, uh, have to watch the rest of the tournament from home. Do you think it's a little unfair for him? Uh, We know he missed out on that first game uh, against Uruguay, and Egypt really suffered that heartbreaking 1-0 loss in the last minute. So do you think it's unfair for him to go home so early? I don't know if it's unfair for him. I think it all comes down to a bad decision on Hector Cooper, their manager's problem. They were in a 0-0 game late into that game, saying 70th minute. He could have brought him on. At least it brings the team's energy up, lifts their spirits, kind of gives them, all right, breath of fresh air. Uh, if we keep defending, we keep defending because they were defending well in that game. Keep defending, and we have an outlet in Salah. He's fresh, good legs. 
maybe make something happen. We can steal a one nothing win here. We're playing well. Instead, you never bring them on. Your team is getting stuck in. They keep defending, 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 defending. And eventually, you know, Uruguay was just going to come in there because apart from Suarez and Cavani, they have two great headers of the ball and their center backs in Godin and Jose Maria Jimenez, which is the one who ended up scoring the goal. So he just never gave his team the, the boost of energy that a manager needs to do in those situations. So we talk about some of the teams that have been really impressive so far just over a week into the World Cup. I still think the most impressive team has been Spain so far, even though they kind of labored at some time in that 3-3 draw with Portugal. They're still top of the group right now, tied with the Portuguese. Who do you think will take Group B when it's all said and done? I think it's still going to be Spain. They have that last game against Morocco, which could be tricky because Morocco, since they're already eliminated, they have nothing to lose. So I think you won't see as defensive of a Morocco team as you normally see. But again, that plays back into Spain's favor because they won't be playing against a team with 11 guys behind the ball like Iran did. And Spain still broke them down. I know it was a fluke goal from Diego Costa, but Spain, they've shown possession and attacking flavor so far through this World Cup, and I think they'll be able to break down Morocco. So I think they take the group. And then that uh, Iran-Portugal game is going to be tricky because Iran almost tied Spain. They had that offsides goal disallowed. But Iran's a tricky team already with three points. The tie doesn't do them anything, but a 1-0 win sees them through to the next round. So Portugal has to be careful. Yeah, it's worth noting that as good Spain and Portugal have been, neither of them are yet to qualify. Iran is right on their tail. Both teams need good results in their last game to make sure they get good qualification, so it'll be interesting to see. But going forward, what I love about Spain so much is that they've added that X factor in Diego Costa up front. We've already seen him bag three goals for them. We've already seen what he can do with that pace, with that power, being able to hold up the ball. He really showed it well against Portugal in a game where Cristiano Ronaldo took all the headlines with scoring three. Diego Costa was the next best player on the field, scoring two. Exactly, no, and like you said, he provides them a different dimension. In years past, they've had guys like David Villa, Fernando Torres, even playing with the false nine to where they're more of that pass-and-go, pass-and-go, kind of move the ball in the midfield. He provides that bigger presence, a guy that they can cross it into in the box instead of just trying to pass their way to the goal. He's kind of provides something outside of the tiki-taka, which was necessary because sometimes the tiki-taka won't work. You kind of need those like moments of... I won't say magic, but kind of just moments of like brute force that Diego Costa can provide for you. Yeah, we saw a great example of it today with France playing Peru. Uh, you saw that Deschamps went with Giroud in this one, where in the first game he sat him on the bench. How do you think that fared for them against Peru? I've always thought France has been better when Giroud starts up top and Griezmann can kind of play behind them. Because Griezmann, when he's alone up top, he can get kind of lost. When he's allowed to play behind Giroud... The French can play the ball up long for Giroud, and Griezmann feeds off those little flick-ons from Giroud, or he'll head it down for him, and Griezmann runs onto it and can either take it himself or flick it off to Mbappe outright, who, by the way, Mbappe is one of the stars of the tournament so far. He's played great uh, against Peru, bagging the goal, and I don't think he was half bad against Australia either. I thought he was France's most dynamic player. So he's been looking really good. But, yeah, I think Griezmann uh, plays better in that second striker sort of world than as that center forward nine up top. I think it's interesting to note that Deschamps put Matuidi almost as a left-handed midfielder today, while in the first game he went with Usman Dembele on that side. So it'll be interesting what he does with that midfield. Especially against stronger teams, I could see him sticking with that because it provides him Matuidi and Kante can kind of be kind of look kind of like those destroyers and it also frees up Pogba to push him up further up the pitch and allow him to be more creative instead of having to worry about those defensive responsibilities that we've criticized Mourinho for making Pogba do at United. Yeah, and we see in that group, Denmark, 
still in second, hanging in there with four points. They drew today with Australia. So who do you think can nab that second spot in that group? I think it's going to be Denmark. I just want to say I think it's uh, cruel. Soccer can be a cruel sport sometimes. I think it's cruel that Peru are already eliminated. In my opinion, Peru were the most attacking team out of that entire group and one of the more exciting teams so far in this entire tournament. Just their finishing has let them down. You wonder if Guerrero had started the game against Denmark, if that game could have turned out differently. But Peru missed so many chances. And like there's a saying in Spanish called El que no las hace, se las ve hacer. The team that, that's, that doesn't put them in sees them get scored on them. And that's what happened to Peru. Peru had so many chances, and eventually they end up losing two 1-0 games. Kind of sad to see them go, but that's the, the way the sport works. Um, getting back to your question, Denmark. I think they're the obvious choice to go through. I don't think Australia can will get past Peru. I think Peru will finally get a win. It won't mean anything, but I think Peru takes down Australia. And Denmark, they just need a draw against France. Both teams will be content to move on. And that sets up an interesting showdown for whoever they meet from Group D. All the teams in Group C were in action today. The last game that was played today was the big one at 2 p.m. Eastern. Croatia, Argentina, 3-0 to the Croatians. Personally, I don't think Argentina are done yet. I think it would be foolish to write them off so early. They would have to beat Nigeria in the last game and really get some help from Iceland as well. But I don't think you can count them out yet. I don't count them out, but even if they do get out of the group stage, I just don't. Because they can't win the group now. Croatia is going to more than likely win the group. If Argentina advances, they'd be second. Even if they do somehow get out of the group stage, round of 16 match against France... For as much as France has been un, uninspiring, multiply that by 15, and that's how Argentina have been. Argentina, okay against Iceland, but they were in shambles against Croatia. Messi doesn't have space like he does at Barcelona. He doesn't have the help that he has at Barcelona. We were talking about it before, Messi having to drop in way deep into the midfield to the point where he's not even a 10 anymore. He's almost like a regular center mid, and that's not Messi. At Barcelona, Messi can be out on the right wing, kind of drift around, wait for his moments, and then join the attack, uh, whether he's floating in uh, to the center areas of the pitch or outright cutting in and making something happen with his left foot. And Argentina, you have Aguero up top, but then uh, other than that, like I don't understand what Sampaoli is doing. No Lo Celso, no Paulo Dybala. You're playing with guys like Eric Banega, Enzo Perez, who missed an absolute sitter today that could have changed the complexion of that game. I think this Argentine team is in shambles. And I don't know if they have enough time to turn it around. And I don't think Sampaoli is going to turn it around. I think it's unfair for Messi to have to go through so much verbal abuse from I both agree. his fans, from international fans, especially when you see Cristiano Ronaldo excelling at such a level. But there's so many question marks that you have to point towards the Argentinian manager and Jorge Sampaoli. You have Paolo Daibala, one of the best number 10s in the world, and he plays 20 minutes in two games of World Cup action, I find that baffling. And we talk about Cristiano Ronaldo, even though he doesn't have the pace, on the left, he can kind of work his way into the game, find some pockets of space just to get some rhythm. Messi is surrounded by a swarm of defenders every time he touches the ball. The most he can do is just kind of switch sides at most or just uh, lay it off for a midfielder that's next to him. He has no opportunities to be, to be creative. It's funny that their counterparts from the last World Cup, Germany, are having, I don't want to say similar struggles, but they're having their struggles of their own as well. Uh, we saw them play a very disappointing match against Mexico. Congratulations to the Mexicans, by the Mexico, way, for a great performance. Mexico, to me, that was one of the top two or three most impressive performances of the group stage. Mexico put on a counterattacking clinic 
so much speed. Hector Herrera, Chicharitos no slouch either. Carlos Vela, Chucky Lozano. Um, Mexico counterattacking class defended well, and then they didn't wait. When they saw opportunities, they broke. I was looking at something earlier where a big thing that Juan Carlos Osorio did, uh, Mexico's manager, he had Carlos Vera man-marking Tony Cruz. So that didn't allow Germany to kind of build out of the back, so they would kind of like push it wide. And the thing with Germany is uh, the right back, Joshua Kimmich, likes to push up really high. So if you paid attention, Mexico often when they counterattacked would be on Mexico's left, which is the uh, band that Joshua Kimmich was leaving alone. And that's where Chucky Lozano ended up scoring his goal from, from the left. So I think there was a great masterclass in kind of scouting your, your opponent, seeing who's their creator, kind of man-marking him, and then taking advantage of the spaces that you know that they're going to leave open. And that's why I think Mexico's in good position to possibly win that group. I think the only thing Mexico could have improved on in that performance was their finishing. For as well as they played, they should have won that game maybe 2-3-0. Chicharito had one or two chances to where he could have either either laid it off better or taken a shot. Mexico had a lot of chances. I remember one. It was like three Mexicans against one German defender, and they completely scuffed the opportunity. They didn't even make it a tough save for Neuer. So I think if they want to progress further, if they finally want to make it to a quarterfinals for the first time in eight World Cups, they're going to have to improve their finishing, and improve their decision-making in the box. The result was just as telling for Mexico as it was for Germany because, frankly, the Germans looked awful from the beginning. The way the Mexicans pressed them high. They looked old and slow. And I think most of it comes from pretty much the lineup choice from jo- from Joachim Love. It's, a, he's trying to, it's kind of the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But you kind of saw signs of it that 2014 wasn't going to be 2018. They struggled a little bit in friendlies. I think they lost to Austria. Of course, Austria played well in its friendlies. They beat Russia. They beat Germany. But yeah, no, they look slow in midfield. I don't think the partnership of Cruz and Kedira is the one you want to go with. I'd like to see the introduction of possibly like Emre Chan kind of in that center defensive midfield role. I feel like he's a little bit more explosive. And I just wonder on that left wing side and the right, Muller outright, he kind of lacks that pace. In my opinion, if I'm Yogi Love, stick him as a false nine. Germany's shown that they could play with a false nine. They did it at the last World Cup, for crying out loud. And you can kind of stick Draxler out right and Royce out left. But I think here's the part where not bringing Leroy Sané hurts the team. Because Leroy Sané, if they brought him on, he could have been their most dynamic player. Kind of offered them something different. Like Diego Costa for Spain. He's the one guy who offers them something different. Leroy Sané could have been the one guy who offers something different for Germany. More direct at the opponent can be explosive on the ball. And I know he hadn't been playing well for Germany, but especially you saw it against Mexico. They were slow. Leroy Sané, the one thing that he is not is slow. He's a very quick player. And I think not bringing him what Yogi Love is going to rue that decision. For as good as Tony Kroos is, he doesn't have the legs to go back and forth, box to box for that German midfield. He needs a guy next to him like... Like you said, an Emre Chan. Or like uh, Madrid Casemiro. Casemiro's more of that box-to-box guy, and he allows Tony Cruz to kind of be more of that deep-line playmaker. While for Germany, he's forced to be kind of that box-to-box guy. The decision to start Müller on the right-hand side, Timo Werner up front. Early on, you saw maybe one through ball go to Timo Werner. The rest of the game, they didn't have one. Timo Werner is a guy that you're going to have to play off his pace. You can't just throw crosses into the box like a Mario Gomez. He's not going to get on the end of those, of those balls. So they really have to perfect and improve their link of play in that midfield with an Ozil, with a Kroos, introduce a guy like Gundogan, Chan, even a Leon Goretzka that inject a little bit of pace, power into that midfield. I think that's what Germany lack right now. And their defense looked very rusty too. You saw Jerome Boateng, what some time off would do for him. 
he he had a nightmare against Chucky Lozano and Chicharito. Well, the, the, the thing was, I don't even think they were bad in and of their own. I think it's just that they were left, Hummels and Boateng, by themselves. So, so exposed. Off, so exposed because Kimmich is pushed up high. Uh, the left-back Plattenhardt's pushed up high. Like you said, I, I think putting in someone like Goretzka would help the team. I, I just think they're trying to play the same system with, like, the players that don't really fit that system anymore. Like, last World Cup, that Schweinsteiger. Schweinsteiger, that warrior. He was going to be there at that center defensive mid spot. And you saw his performance against Messi in that World Cup. Schweinsteiger was a beast that entire tournament. I just think Yogi Love needs to tinker around a little bit with his formation. I don't know what the perfect one would be, but the current formation with the players I played with against Mexico, it's just old, slow, and they need a breath of fresh air. And they'll have an opportunity to redeem themselves against Sweden in a couple days. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see which team can come up on top in Group F. Exactly. Yeah, because Sweden, they already got that win against South Korea. They're going to be perfectly content to sit back and defend against Germany as well. A tie works for them. Sweden could frustrate them, and a 0-0 tie, well, it's great for Sweden. puts Germany in real danger heading into that last game against South Korea. The last little touch on Germany. You saw one of their most creative and gifted players, Mesut Ozil, come under huge Huge scrutiny. And he does have a reputation for sometimes disappearing in the big games. Yeah, and to me it was it was funny seeing that Germany performance because they looked almost exactly like a poor Arsenal side in the sense that they threw so many men forward and really lacked ideas at and, the same time. And allowing that counterattack against them. That's the way that Arsenal's always been diced apart. When they do push guys forward, the other team will just come back and hit them with a counterattack and somehow take the leader, tie it up or something like that. And... That, that's a good analogy. I haven't thought about it like that before, but even with the Ozil comparison and everything, that has a reputation for sometimes disappearing in big Arsenal matches, and he definitely disappeared in this Germany versus Mexico game. He's the only guy left from that World Cup squad that has started every single game since. So Joachim Love has put a lot of faith in him. It'll be interesting to see if he keeps doing that going forward. I think he could be still a key player for them. He just has to find the right balance in that midfield out on those wings so that there's a sense of creativity as well as pace and power that they can really scare teams again. I completely agree. So we move on to Group G then. We saw Belgium trounce Panama 3-0 in the first game. In the first half, they didn't look so impressive, but the second half was the Belgium that we've finally been waiting to see in a major tournament. Lukaku just using his strength and pace to kind of run in behind that Panama defense. Stris Mertens scored a wonder goal off that volley. Um, De Bruyne was De Bruyne. Hazard was Hazard. Um, Lukaku was very good up front. He was strong. He bagged his goal. I think it's important for him to get that early goal in this tournament. Two two early goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I think, especially with the way some of the favorites have been playing, I think this could be the tournament where maybe Belgium, if they can continue that momentum going, could be could finally shed the label of Dark Horse and just straight up be one of the favorites. Granted, it was against Panama. Panama, not the strongest side in the world, but they were a team that were defecting pretty compactly in Belgium to finally be able to break them down. I think that's going to be good for them, especially as they're going to play Tunisia uh, coming up soon. Uh, another team that's going to play similarly. And then once you start playing better teams, they're not going to sit back as much. And it's going to open up space for you to attack even more. What I liked about Belgium is that they looked really comfortable in that three in the back formation with Roberto Martinez. I think that's a great decision by him because Belgium before had always been playing with that four at the back. And fine, but Belgium's strengths in defense had always been their center backs. They never really had a good left back and right back in the nominal sense. So why not play with your three center backs and then allow 
Moigne and a guy with his pace like Carrasco at left wing back. He's not. He can't play left back because he doesn't have the defensive tracking abilities. But someone with who's attack minded, stick him at left wing back. He'll track back sometimes, but let him bomb forward and help out guys like Hazard and De Bruyne and Witzel and Mertens move the ball in that midfield. And I agree that really created a lot of space for Hazard, Mertens to kind of float around in those two attacking midfield positions. It really looked good when it all came together. And then we have in that same group. England, who kind of labored to a 2-1 win against Tunisia. But I liked the way they looked for the majority of that match. I thought they looked dangerous. I thought they looked comfortable. And what a header by Harry Kane there in stoppage time. When you have your star number nine, you're not going to get a lot of chances every game. When you're a star striker, you got to bag away the ones that you do get. And that's exactly what Harry Kane did. Po- poachers go both of them, but... Man, you can't say enough about him. Came up big on the biggest of stages for England when they were in trouble and under pressure. He's got his two goals. Anytime you can get a late win, no matter who it's against, for your first match of the World Cup, it's going to give you momentum going forward. I thought Gareth Southgate, I think he looks composed as a manager. He knows his team. He looks comfortable guiding them forward. I think that in this formation... They can do some damage to some big teams. The, the one thing to look out for is the health status of Dele Alli. Dele Alli, one of their most talented and creative players in midfield, uh, struggling through an injury right now, apparently. Do you have Lingard and Sterling kind of in that midfield then and then bring on a guy like Eric Dyer to start alongside Jordan Henderson and give uh, Sterling and Lingard kind of more freedom up top? That could be a game changer for England if Dele Alli isn't available to go because, again, he's he plays with Harry Kane at Tottenham. They have that really good understanding with each other. If he's out of there, I don't know what that does for England in terms of creativity in the midfield. And Dele looked dangerous in the first game. You could tell that he had that partnership going with Kane. I liked how Southgate stuck Sterling up front almost as a number two striker to kind of get him behind, let Harry Kane hold up the play, get everybody else involved. It's kind of like the Giroud and Griezmann thing. Let Sterling run off Kane kind of like Griezmann does off Giroud. Even without Dele, though, I think England still have the power on their bench to kind of replace that. We talked about a guy like Eric Dyer. Their leading scorer in, in for their national team is Danny Welbeck. He's still on the bench. There's still plenty of options that they can go to on the bench, and it'll be even be interesting to see if they still choose that same lineup against a team that they know will come at them in a knockout stage match. Maybe insert a guy like Marcus Rashford, who also has some pace and can, can put away goals to maybe pair him up with Kane and have Sterling play almost as a cam behind them instead to kind of make up for that Dele Alli miss. They have a lot of options in, in those attacking positions. My only question with them is do they have maybe two or three players that are too similar? You look at Sterling, you look at Dele Alli, you look at Jesse Lingard. Those are three players that, to me, they play similar ways. Similar, but I think Sterling especially is different than the other two just because he's not as technical on the ball, although he's gotten better about it at Man City. But he's definitely the kind of guy where his positioning has improved, his IQ has improved. His finishing still isn't there, even though he still scored a bunch of goals for Man City. But I think Dele Alli is kind of more of a creative player, more of your stereotypical cam. And I think Sterling still is kind of more of your stereotypical winger who's been inserted into the midfield. So we move on to Group H, where your Colombians, your cafeteros, suffered disappointment in their opening match against Japan. It was a tough one for them to swallow, especially going down to 10 men so early with the handball from Carlos Sanchez. What do you see from Colombia going forward? Do you think they can rebound from this? Or do you think there's reason to panic, especially in a tough group in Group H? I think it's a little bit of both. We'll start off with the reason reason to panic. They're playing a team who's in equal desperation in Poland in their next game. 
two teams that have to win, Colombia and Poland. Poland's no slouch. Colombia's no slouch. In my opinion, they're actually pretty equal teams. So I think that could be one of the games of the tournament. I think there's reason for cautious reason for optimism. It's it's hard to tell what you have in this Colombia World Cup side just because they, they went down to 10 men so early that you never really got to see them with 11 men. And including with that, with the 10 men, Quintero, was started the game instead of Hamas. Hamas didn't come in until around the 60th minute. This game against Poland, I fully expect Hamas to start. Carlos Sanchez's replacement, Wilmar Barrios, might actually be a little bit better than Carlos Sanchez. He's had a great season for Boca Juniors. Rumors are that he signed for Tottenham. They call him the Colombian and Golo Cante just because he can play that destroyer role really well. And I think he'll fit in really well. The big thing will be who plays out left, Izquierdo. Started off the game for Colombia against Japan, but since they went down to 10 men, Colombia kind of had difficulty playing on that left side through Mojica and Izquierdo. So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of communicate and play off each other in the next game because they're two guys with a lot of pace. So they're guys that you want to play the ball in front of them through balls, let them run onto it. Well, Colombia couldn't do that because they had 10 men, so they needed a little bit more built-up play. Farcao looked a little bit old, but he was he was a warrior. He was running all around the pitch in that game. Again, hard to take away too much when you're down to 10 men so early. So we'll see how they play against Poland. On the flip side, team that really impressed, Senegal. They got kind of lucky with that second goal, the referee waving and by Niang on him running onto it and uh, putting it away. But I still think either way, they look really dangerous on the counterattack. So much speed coming at you. Niang, Keita Balde, Sadio Mane, that midfield, and even in the back, really good uh, with guys like Koulibaly and Idrissa Gay. So I think... I fully expect now Senegal to move on, and I think it's whoever that one of Colombia Poland is that uh, moves on in that group with them. There were similar comparisons coming into the tournament between Mohamed Salah's Egyptian team and then Sadio Mane's Senegal team, and we kind of wanted to see both of these guys really spearhead and lead their team forward. In reality, it was only one of them that could end up doing it, but I do think that Mane had, like you said, more help in that Senegal team, and they really looked lethal, fast, powerful against a Poland team that looked kind of rusty to me. They were having trouble getting the ball up to Lewandowski. They didn't Lewandowski did not show up in that game. Not at all. Again, he's kind of like the guy who needs to be fed the ball. He's not gonna, he's not a striker who's going to come in as a false nine, kind of drop a little bit deep. He tried to he dro- tried to drop a little bit deeper to pick up the ball, but Lewandowski, when he's dropping deeper, you're taking away from his most dangerous area where he's in the box where he can poach a goal, go up for a header, play uh, one twos and finish it. No, you're when he's when you're calling him, asking him to drop deeper to pick up the ball. You're taking him. You're taking him away from the areas where he's most dangerous. He he's better is getting on the end of those plays, not really turning around and starting them, but getting on the end of them. Exactly. We look at tomorrow's slate of games. Brazil and Costa Rica are scheduled for their first game. We haven't talked much about Brazil this episode, but even though they had a kind of lame draw against a tough Switzerland team. 1-1. I still like the Brazilians going forward. They show a little bit more. I think Neymar kind of struggled a little bit out on the left. I think he tried to do a little bit too much on his own. Play with some of you guys. Play with Coutinho. Play with Paulinho. Paulinho's been dangerous for Barcelona coming as that box-to-box midfielder going up and producing opportunities. Gabriel Jesus. I think Brazil were the better team in that tie against Switzerland, but you saw the importance of set pieces, Switzerland scoring off a header. I think they'll have a little bit of an easier time with Costa Rica. I don't think this Costa Rica team is as strong as it was in 2014. It'll be interesting to see who moves on from this group. I think Brazil obviously still get to advance, but Serbia already have three points, and they have a big matchup against the same Switzerland team. 
So it'll be interesting to see if Switzerland can kind of replicate that same gritty performance. They came under a lot of criticism for fouling Neymar mm-hmm. so much almost every time he picked up the ball with space. From the coaching and team's perspective, you understand why you do it. You're not going to want to let the other team's best player be the one that kills you. So you kind of do what you got to do, a little bit of gamesmanship. But it worked out for them, and they can't really complain because – it worked out for them. So, like you said, it'll be interesting to see how Switzerland kind of varies their approach against Serbia team. I think two very evenly matched teams that kind of look to play the similar style. Maybe Serbia has a little bit more creativity, especially with Sergei Milinkovic-Savic and Dusan Tadic up top, a big physical striker in Alexander Mitrovic. Um, you saw how dangerous Kolarov's left leg can be with that great free kick that he scored. So, I think Serbia, I mean... Serbia's in good shape. If they win that game, they're through to the next round. And before the tournament, not a lot of us were talking about Serbia being one of those teams who could advance to the round of 16. You look at a team like Brazil. Did you like the lineup they chose for that game? They went with Gabriel Jesus up front. We saw Roberto Firmino come in a little later on for him. Do you think think maybe they can do something differently? The thing I'd like to see is Douglas Costa out on the right instead of Willian. If you put Douglas Costa out on the right, he gives you a little bit different than William. William can take on affairs and stuff like that, but I think Douglas Costa just has a little bit more pace and a lot more, he's a lot more dynamic on the ball. Make guys miss, cut in for a shot, take it out wide for a cross. I think he provides them a a little bit of a different dynamic. I think Coutinho has been great for them. I think he'll continue to be great for them. And I feel like Douglas Costa would just be a kind of player who would play better with him than William would. So after today's events with Argentina, Croatia, the middle game tomorrow between Nigeria and Iceland actually becomes a huge game for those two teams and for Argentina. We saw Nigeria look pretty much baffled in their first game. They looked very young, inexperienced. Alex Awobi was even taken off in the 60th minute. What can you expect from them against an Iceland team tomorrow who you know is going to defend tightly, who you know is going to be loud and in your face? Do you think Nigeria has kind of the energy and and, and the know-it-all to put that and use it in their favor? I like Iceland in this game because Nigeria... They will play best against a team that will attack them, and then they can use their pace to counterattack at them. Well, Iceland's not that kind of team. They're big physical. They're going to wait for you to attack them. And Nigeria doesn't have a lot of, I'd say, super creative players in the midfield. Again, they rely a lot on their pace. So I think they're going to run into a a little bit of trouble where they're going to be on the ball a lot against Iceland, but I think it's going to be possession for not. A lot of their... Offense last game ran through Victor Moses out on the right, and he really struggled against Chris. Just couldn't seem to get anything going. They couldn't get guys like John Obi-Mikel on the ball. Alex Wobi once again, didn't get on the ball. None of their midfielders really had any real presence in it. And Moses had to act as that lone outlet on that right-hand side, and you could see that he couldn't handle that all on And we own. saw Iceland, whenever they would pick up the ball against Argentina, it's they're pushing forward. They're not playing any games. They're going straight forward, very direct. They created a lot of... Really good chance, not half chances, but very good chances against Argentina. And I think even from set pieces especially is where they're going to be dangerous against Nigeria. And I I wouldn't be shocked. I actually kind of expect Iceland to pull off a win against Nigeria, which would make things very difficult for Argentina heading into that last match day. With four teams already qualifying, Russia and Uruguay, both in Group A, Croatia and France punching their tickets today. Going forward in these few days, who do you like? Who do you think can join those teams I think Belgium and England punched their tickets in these upcoming match days. I think Senegal punches their ticket against Japan. And 
after that, it's tough to see. We'll have to wait and see for the third match days. The third match days are always intriguing because the two games are played at the same time. Teams kind of trying to avoid uh, certain teams in the other groups. So I think it's hard to say go into the last match day. But I think in the days coming up, we'll see Senegal uh, punch your ticket, Belgium and England punch your ticket. I'm going to go on a limb and say Serbia beat Switzerland, and I think we'll see Serbia punch their ticket as well. Out of the biggest disappointments so far, Argentina, Germany, who do you see maybe crashing out? Well, I think... I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if Iran shocked Portugal. Portugal haven't looked impressive. It's really just been the Ronaldo show. He's more than capable of doing that against Iran. I just don't know if the Ronaldo show can last for an entire tournament. Apart from that, I think we'll see Poland, disappointingly, their World Cup come to an end after the Colombia game. I think it'll be a really tough game. I just think Colombia has a little bit more going forward, especially with Hamas. I think... Hamas and Lewandowski will be the two best players on the pitch, but Hamas can drop back and get the ball a little bit more because he's that cam. If you're asking Lewandowski to drop back and get the ball, like we talked about earlier, it's not what he's meant to be doing. So I think Colombia will be able to find a little bit more space against Poland and take advantage of it. I think they'll get the 2-1 victory, and that will be sending Poland home early. So in terms of disappointments in these upcoming days, I think it will be Poland being the big disappointment. So with that, once again, you guys have three games tomorrow on tap. Brazil, Costa Rica at 8 a.m., Nigeria and Iceland at 11 a.m. Eastern, Serbia and Switzerland at 2 p.m. Eastern. We want to thank you for listening to the Spill the Cup podcast episode two. We'll be back with you after the group stages end to talk about the knockout stages, what we think we'll be expecting going forward. I'm Jonathan Costa. And I'm Edgar Chavero, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you.